Welcome, everyone. This is Jessica Toft, and I want to thank you for joining us for our first podcast and our series of three related to neoliberalism's impact on social welfare and social work practice in the United States, with an emphasis on child welfare work. Today, we will discuss the concept of neoliberalism, focusing on those aspects that are most important to social work and social welfare. In this podcast, I'm joined by PhD candidate Rudy Sofer Anakave as we discuss and define this concept. Jessica, I've learned a lot about neoliberalism in the past two years in connection to social welfare and social work. And I just wanted to start by asking you what got you interested in neoliberalism? Um, you know, I have been a uh, professor of social work for many years now, and I've taught a number of social welfare history courses and policy courses and research courses and masters and DSW and, and now PhD courses. And I um, have become interested in this because I see that it's a really important social force uh, at this point in social work's history. Um, and it became um, more uh, concrete to me, I was the president of the Minnesota chapter of the National Association of Social Workers. And um, we would have, uh, you know, gatherings, conferences, workshops, presentations. And so many social workers would come to me and say, my work life is um, really difficult. I'm feeling really stressed out. I'm overworked. You know, what can you do as a professional association? And um, I, it was um, so prominent. I thought there's something, there's something going on here. Um, and I have always been interested in my research agenda has always been interested in topics related to vulnerable, vulnerable groups, disenfranchised groups, the poor, um, persons who have been uh, disenfranchised, uh, persons of color, women, um, issues of gender and race together. Um, I also, in my research, I was interested in um, how political discourse is a social force and how it can be used to shape our understanding of people and their problems and even shape what we should do about them. Um, and these things together, along with sort of the rise of um, social workers doing more and more and more one-on-one -on -one kind of practice instead of community and macro practice uh, work, um, um, really had me thinking about the what was happening. And so when I started hearing about neoliberalism and its forces, I, I thought, this is, this is it. This is the thing that's shaping all of these uh, pieces. Um, and, you know, I'm, I am just old enough uh, so that my early professional career when I worked at a, a group home and a youth shelter was really before neoliberalism took uh, hold, I think, of social welfare provisioning. And so I, I've seen a change over time in, um, in my own professional work. So that's, that's how I got into this uh, topic. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, but neoliberalism is really a very big word, and I think most of us don't fully understand it, if at all. Could you explain what it means for us in general, or how might it be related to child welfare work? Right. Um, well, it, it is related to child welfare work, but I have to start back a little bit. First of all, I will just say that um, we're not the only ones where this is a difficult term to uh, understand. In fact, Nearly every article that talks about the intellectual tradition or the history of this term um, will start off with a phrase something like 
neoliberalism is difficult to define. <laughs> that will be, it's just sort of something that they start off that way. Um, but one thing I think helps right off the bat is to say what it's not. It is not liberalism like we think about it. It's, you know, um, it's not sort of that a left-wing stance about, you know, social welfare and, um, and that kind of a, a perspective. And it's not even the more classical political liberalism that political scientists think about, which is the idea that individuals should, there should be a protection of the freedom of the individual, you know, and, and individual autonomy was all important. Um, so it's not those things. And so I just want to say that off the bat, because I think it's hard for us in our day and age to get, especially that social liberalism out of our head. But um, so uh, I will, I'm going to give you a, a really quick brief description that I'm then going to unpack a little bit to, to help us at least have an idea to start with. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, so neoliberalism, it's, it's a governing principle and, um, the idea is that it's a governing principle that endorses free markets by reducing business regulations and withdrawing welfare state protections. So it's a combination of an economic idea and a political and social idea uh, that, ha that go in tandem with one another. Um, and what I will say is, about before, I'm not going to spend much time with the economic economic piece of it because others do that uh, very well. But one thing about neoliberalism to know, as you know, a person on this earth, is that it's not the same thing as laissez-faire economics, uh, which is something that we a lot of us have heard about. So it's not the idea that just leave the markets alone and um, get the government out of there, and then they're just going to thrive and survive. We just, you know, government is is damping them down. It's not that. Um, in fact, neoliberals understand that markets have to be tended and supported and protected. And so we need policies for those things. So for example, uh, corporate tax breaks, um, government subsidies, or even bailouts, as we know about from the Great Recession of 2008. These are things um, that, this is economic policy, um, where it's, so it's not a laissez-faire idea. It's that we need to protect markets and tend them and support them, almost as though it was a person or an entity, you know, in our, in our mind. Um, so neoliberalism does require those kinds of policies, but in order to work, it also requires change in the political and the social and the cultural fabric of society in order to support markets. And this is where social work comes into play. Um, so part of it was to uh, free markets, and the other part was to withdraw the welfare state protections. So this would mean limiting things like worker protections, for example, so uh, limiting the power of unions, uh, limiting access to um, health care, uh, limiting food support and, and even family assistance, um, for example. Um, markets thrive better when they have access to low-wage, flexible work, especially in a globalized economy. So these policies have freed up these uh, workers and laborers from what had been social protections and have made them more available to markets. <clears throat> and, you know, a uh, major example of this for, in social work would be when we think about um, the aid to families for dependent children that was... Um, then rescinded and replaced by uh, the temporary assistance for needy families. 
Um, that's TANF, right? That's TANF, right. So AFDC is what we used to call, you know, and that came out of uh, the uh, Social Security Act of 1935 after the Great Depression. One of the great bedrocks of our Social Security um, uh, was that program, and it was an entitlement attached to citizenship. And uh, But with TANF, uh, no longer is that an entitlement. Instead, this idea of a right, a social right of citizenship, an entitlement, was reworked to be a contract so that in order to receive this under TANF, you as a low-income, often woman uh, with children, single woman with children, a mother with children, would have to engage in paid work in order to receive this right of citizenship benefit. Um, and we can... Uh, and, and so that's a that's a really clear maybe signature neoliberal policy that we can see that it's impacted a lot of uh, folks in social work and social welfare. Um, but if I can continue, I'd like to do a little bit more about the political and the social and the cultural because I think that this is where it gets um, so important for social work, but it's so hard to kind of understand it because there's so many layers to it. So yeah, are you so, okay? Uh, yes, definitely. Yeah. We'd love to hear more about the political and social structures around it. One of the things with the United States and like many other Western democracies is that after World War II, uh, Keynesian economics came into place. So you don't have to know what that is, except for it meant that a lot of these industrialized Western democracies um, put into place really robust welfare states because they realized that um, workers were uh, vulnerable uh, to capitalism, that there was, that, and they'd lived through a world war, and they'd lived through great depressions, and um, they wanted to have some kind of protections in place. So you cannot tear down this kind of social solidarity sort of policy overnight. And um, what Wendy Brown says, who's really the best known political philosopher on neoliberalism, is that you need a political reasoning that can really resonate with a population, that can start to sort of supplant this idea over time. And in fact, what Brown says is that the reasoning, the political reasoning that has overshadowed this idea of, of citizen protections is the idea of the market. Um, this is a really powerful idea. Margaret Summers and Fred Block talk about that. This is a 200-year-old ideology in the United States, this idea of a work ethic. And that this um, individual you know, individualism kind of work ethic was sort of reworked into a political reasoning where all aspects of our life, uh, this is what the neoliberals thought about, all aspects of our life should be thought of in terms of a market or a model of a market. So this means that the individual who had been thought about as a political actor or a social actor should really be reduced to only an economic actor. And um, some of these ideas will sound maybe familiar to you, to you and to others. Um, the idea that individuals should be self-interested um, and that they're rational. You know, if we have all the information, we can make the decisions that we need. And if we have that, then we should also be individually responsible so that um, we should be able to choose the optimal course of action, given all the information we have. And so therefore, if we're making our choices, we should have to bear all the risk on the outcome of those choices. 
Um, but what this does is an economic scales, it puts us in a role of being entrepreneurs on every aspect of our life. We have to assess the best return on every social encounter. We're constantly in competition with ourselves, uh, improving ourselves, uh, with our with our coworkers, um, our children, competition, you know, little bits of human capital, little piece of human capital. Um, so interactions in a neoliberal frame become really just contracts. They become transactional. It's a quid pro quo. They're exchanges, um, and this is how our needs need to be um, uh, need to be fulfilled. But what this creates, of course, is that we know in real life that we can't assume all responsibility and risk without a, a without a real sense of insecurity, because there's so many things that are sort of out of our control or feel like we don't have, uh, you know, full control over. So the whole social contract is marketized. It's about money and getting better and getting the best result rather than being there for one another. Yeah, it's it is. It's about um, it's about the idea that if I do this for you, then you're going to give me that. And um, at least in our social interactions. And that's that's our exchange. Thank you very much. And we, we go on our way. Um, and when you think about social provisioning, you'll see contracts play a big role in social provisioning because this is neoliberal thinking on um, the, the administrative level, the state level to our nonprofits are, are about contracts now and performing in a certain way and doing more for less. Um, contracts are also about how agencies uh, then uh, relate to their uh, workers. Um, and their social service providers because they have contracts they need to meet. So they need to make sure that their workers are falling in line and they're doing the things they need to do in order to, um, to meet these contracts. So it, it, is, it does start to rework many of our relationships in the social world into the forms of contracts and exchanges and um, quid pro quos. Um, you know, what also it does is it replaces an idea of something that we don't really put in the front of our mind is that uh, the idea of the social and the public and the collective and shared risk, you know, that underlies welfare states. Uh, think about public schools in the last, you know, that number of decades. Um, we've had such a difficult time um, getting health insurance, but even, you know, the um, Affordable Care Act is really under siege right now. That was, you know, trying to expand this idea of collective risk. Um, so these ideas of the political and the social and the democratic citizen has really been um, replaced by economic entrepreneur. And in fact, uh, Wendy Brown says we're all neoliberals now. In fact, mm -hmm. it's so we're so saturated with it. It's like the water we swim in. We, we can't even it's hard for us to imagine something else. So um, this is tough yeah. for social work. No, that's interesting because you're saying that um, we don't see it anymore and we're all sort of socialized into this way of political reasoning and way of thought. So how how can we even identify it then? Well, I think, you know, as you start to, I, I think it's sort of like the matrix, you know, you take the blue <laughs> pill, you take the red pill. And once you start to understand the political reasoning of neoliberalism, you can start to see it. And this is one of the things about ideologies is that they're powerful when they're hidden. They become mm -hmm. less powerful um, when they are made more explicit 
And when we can see the, uh, the tools of, of operation at play, so to speak, think about language, for example. Um, in our social services, we've, tar- we've talked about uh, the people we work with as consumers mm-hmm. um, quite a bit. We, um, uh, people have to reach uh, you know, goals. They have performance contracts. They have client contracts of different kinds. Um, this language that has been borrowed from economics and business has been sort of quietly put into place and in supplanting ideas of social welfare practice, of, of well-being and health and holistic approaches and um, those sorts of things. So, it, so that's one of the ways that I think that we can start to think about it is to actually to start to think about our language. Um, okay. And yeah, it's a, it's a good beginning. Okay, thank you. Um, so we were talking about how we might recognize it in general, but how can we see the principles of neoliberalism in social policy? So I'm making the claim that, you know, social work has been neoliberalized. You know, how do, what does that look like? Um, yeah. uh, you know, so, um, if the political reasoning is that personal responsibility and accountability and those sorts of things, we can see that, for example, just in the TANF example that, that we talked about, personal responsibility is actually was so prominent during the 1990s with the contract for America. Um, that was like the most frequently stated phrase, and it's embedded into that policy, the ideas of personal responsibility. But we can see it in all different kinds of social um, service um, uh, policies today. We also see um, ideas of market and business principles are applied to the delivery of social services. So um, uh, so the, the idea of, of being productive and efficient and you know not wasting a single dime of taxpayer money and in fact but isn't that yeah. isn't that a good thing like we are paying yeah. all this tax money for social welfare right um, services and we do want the services to be efficient and to get the results that are in the public's best interest so if mm-hmm. services are more efficient isn't that a great thing ah see this is a this is a key <laughs> point efficiency is also a neoliberal um, idea in that it's 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 a factory term. It's a way of thinking about how quickly can you do something. The question for me is um, partly effectiveness and partly humaneness. Um, As human beings, how are we as social workers addressing the problems of living of human beings? Is that an efficiency calculation? Is a important question for us. Now, I'm not saying that we should just spend money however we want to as social services, but I do think we need to have a conversation about what are the um, goals of a service that are really about social rights of citizenship. People are accessing these services because they are a citizen and they are uh, looking for assistance. So whose goals are we serving if we're just being efficient um, rather than thinking about what is it that this family really needs to uh, function and do well and to do well on their own terms. I mean, it, you know, they have to have some say, they have to have some autonomy themselves in how they are being acted upon. So, um, 
So I think that there, we need to uh, challenge the idea of efficiency without any other kind of rubric of what is it, what are you trying to achieve? What is, what is it with the people that you're working with or trying to work towards? Um, other part about neoliberalism is that it's, it's uh, the evolution of responsibility. So no longer um, uh, do we have as many programs or administered from a federal level, which would have a, kind of an equalizing um, a pressure on, on social programs and how they are dispensed. When we devolve responsibility down to lower levels of government, you have much different kinds of provision of social welfare policy. So people in certain parts of the country who maybe are not well-funded or maybe don't support social services are getting uh, very little service, maybe very restricted service, maybe certain, uh, maybe there's a lot, a lot of different kinds of maybe more um, disciplinary services than in other parts of the country. Um, also, just the privatization of public goods. Uh, we This now is how we uh, provide a, a great amount of our social services or some is through some kind of privatizing mechanism, um, usually through performance contracts um, of all kinds. Can you maybe give an example for that to make it clearer? Yeah. yeah. Um, so we think about, um, let's say, providing mental health services, for example. So that is a service that is contracted. You know, the state works with uh, HMOs, and they come up with uh, – um, uh, the state basically gives over some of its governing responsibility to these HMOs, who then work with agencies and set up contracts, saying you need to provide – you know, this uh, service, this much service for this much money. And uh, there's all kinds of stipulations that, um, you know, HMOs or third-party payers can put into these contracts. Um, but what it tends to do is it tends to give a lot of power to the payer of services and less power to the provider of services. And um, it, it uh, Gives pre it, it pressurizes, to lack of a better word, uh, <laughs> um, uh, nonprofits uh, and even for profits to do more with less. Um, and, and so, you know, 50 minute uh, mental health hour for this much money. And in fact, not only are we going to tell you how much money you're going to get, but you can only use these services, these kinds of interventions. Um, and uh, sometimes, you know, this will be based on ideas like best practices or evidence-based, but it tends to um, limited what you can do and how much you can do it for uh, based on contract uh, metrics. Yeah. And if I understand correctly, there's also more and more for-profit agencies that are getting mm -hmm. these contracts mm -hmm. and actually making profit by providing social services for marginalized uh, peoples. Right. And you think that's it's an interesting question about we we do have for profits now in human services. And um, I, I'm actually not sure how much they've grown, but they're uh, a, a significant part at this point of social services and for profit organizations are their, their goal is to make a profit. And uh, the way you make a profit is by lowering pay um, and by increasing you know, uh, productivity. And so um, that you, it really does call into question, you know, what, what kinds of services are provided or not allowed maybe under those conditions. Yeah. And I guess the, the, one of the biggest examples are prisons today. Yes. Um, 
Minnesota had private prisons for a little bit, and then it was uh, uh, um, actually I'm not totally hip on the latest <laughs> with private <laughs> prisons, but I, I, they were. Um, I do believe they were uh, that the state legislature um, made them illegal, and you know, but that um, they are definitely around the country, and we've got detention centers, and yeah, a lot of for profit. You can imagine that definitely would be an ethical issue, minefield, if you will. Okay. So getting back on track here. <laughs> so we're talking about privatization of public services and um, some of the principles of neoliberalism and social policy. So I understand one more way that we see that is through managerialism. Could you say something about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so managerialism in social services has become, um, a, it, it's a neoliberal um, idea. And it's the idea of taking business practices of management from the for-profit section and, and applying them in um, human service uh, agencies and organizations, etc. So what this means is um, we are we see within social service agencies a real infusion of a culture of competition. Um, incentives and sanctions are often part of the uh, performance uh, um, review. So if you um, see more people or if you um, engage more clients in a period of time than what your goal was, you might actually get an increase in pay. On the other hand, if you see fewer than what your goal is, you might actually get a decrease in pay or maybe more um, oversight or, you know, things like that. So um, this idea, it's, it's, a, it's a pressure that puts workers in a position of having to really try to get through their caseload, um, which is, it could be a conflict of interest at time if what you're, what you're needing to do with the family takes more than just, you know, 50 minutes. And it also limits your purview about what is in your domain of social work practice. Can you do... Uh, can you get engaged in advocacy, for example, um, which is part of our code of ethics? That's a real question. Um, other pieces about managerialism is just the, the constant monitoring and tracking, the paperwork, uh, the where are you, the monitoring piece of it, um, and the checking in on uh, what, workers are, what workers are doing and how um, efficient they're being. And in fact, the efficiency piece is really a, a cornerstone of um, of neoliberalism, and especially in social uh, provisioning, being productive and being efficient. Um, but you know these um, th these practices uh, also tend to limit then what we can do as social workers. It, it limits our our range of practice and it standardizes practice, manualizes it. As a matter of fact. And, and, so we uh, become we, technicians. Yes, we become technicians. Why, you know, as long as you can say the words and, you know, and do, you know, yeah. you can assess enough mm -hmm. and say the word, you can, you can do this. And in fact, it's one of the down pressures of de-skilling social work. Social workers um, are not getting, they're getting paid less than nurses, certainly less than teachers uh, these days. Um, and uh, we're having a tough time asserting our professional authority um, so uh, this is something that we really need to pay attention to as child uh, welfare workers and social workers who are child welfare workers uh, and all social workers. 
Um, and then finally with managerialism, one last thing I want to say is that it, um, the performance evaluation is often, as I mentioned earlier, preset to goals that management has already decided are important, probably due to the contract they've received with, you know, with the state, whoever's funding them or their funder doesn't have to be the state. Um, and so they are constantly working maybe to an end a goal that is maybe not what the client wants, or maybe even sometimes what the social workers think might not be the best, the, the best method or the best way or approach about going or the best outcome for the family. Um, so this is a real, this is an important aspect, I think, about managerialism is that it challenges the professional authority of in, in our case, social workers and, and child welfare workers. And we're yeah. monitored a lot of times by directors that are not social workers. Yes, it'd be, uh, it, that is true. We hear about a lot of nonprofits, especially, who once had been um, uh, housed, you know, uh, uh, staffed by social workers. And now we have, uh, we've got a lot more MBAs and public manager, you know, um, folks in those positions. So what we talked about, it sounds like that not just clients and general citizens in society are living at under neoliberalism situations and have to be entrepreneurs, but also social workers and child welfare workers, like you just said. Yeah. You know, it, this is, it's as a political reasoning, uh, neoliberalism doesn't have any fences. It can roam where it wants to. And um, because it, it uh, does um, assist a market ideology, it's it's applied to social workers too. Um, we, we do see this competition among coworkers. Um, how, how well are you doing as an individual worker? Individuals becoming more and more responsible for how well their clients do as, as though workers have control over all aspects of their lives. Um, so we, you know, we, in, in child welfare work, we also um, try to even just minimize risk and, you know, risk, minimizing risk is a big, is a big deal. Um, but part of that comes back to this neoliberal idea that uh, um, it's a risky world. And because you're responsible for it, you're going to try to minimize it as much as possible. And when you think about it, sometimes the best course of action with the family is not to make the least amount of risk, but it's to optimize the best possible outcomes. Um, you know, that it might not always be the best way to promote the well-being for a family. Um, if, a, if a family is, um, has some risk factors, you can pull a child from that family, but that might not be the best thing for the child. It might be the least risky thing for the system. So there's some, those are some really difficult questions, but I know I, the child welfare workers who are listening probably recognize that as something that they've run up against. Um, but also... There's you know, liability concerns here. Right, yes, liability. Again, it's that part of the responsibilizing workers. What once had been maybe more of a state or agency, you know, kind of a risk or something that would just, you know, part of life has risk in it. It's now become all the risk has been pushed down towards the frontline worker. Um, a lot of it, not all of it, but um, I, uh, so um, I would say that this is really for social workers all around. It's, it's also created just sort of a state of um, insecurity and risk and like you can't make mistakes. Um, and uh, it, it, I think it limits 
our ability to think creatively and to be fully engaged with our client in a way that uh, on a human to human level, because we are concerned about other um, out, outcomes, other aspects. But my, one might argue that rightfully so, especially in an area like child welfare and child protection, we need to be super careful and super accountable for every step we do in child welfare. So what would be other ways to think about social work practice that don't involve accountability or responsabilization? Right. Well, um, you know, uh, there's a real question here about whose risk is, you know, um, there, depending on who you are in society, if you are a impoverished person, um, maybe a person of color, uh, you are going to be uh, more exposed to the systems that see risk. If you are a fairly privileged, a middle-class person, uh, you're going to be less exposed to those systems that see risk. And there's, there's studies that have demonstrated, you know, when uh, an African-American family or a family of color go to the emergency room and there's a bruise, they're more likely to be called into question for child protection compared to a white family. Um, you know, so and then uh, children of color are more likely to go to public schools and private schools are more likely to be seen by. So um, so some of the get back to your question about, <laughs> about risk is um, what's the risk about? Is the risk about the child or is the risk about the the system sort of protecting um, it's protecting itself, maybe from legal action and et cetera. And and. The, I mean, the risk for the child might be that they're going to they're going to lose that connection and attachment with their family and their parents is another risk. The only risk isn't uh, harm, which is a serious risk. I'll, I'll grant you that. But there's uh, there's a lot of risk in um, white middle class families, too. And we don't seem to be as concerned about about that. This is sounding pretty radical, mm -hmm. so I'm not sure if we want to do this in the <laughs> podcast. But, <laughs> but uh, um, I, I do think that we need to think about when we're using that word risk, what are, what's the risk of taking a child away who maybe doesn't, who, who might end up having trauma from being taken away from a family, from family. So. No, and I think social workers are concerned with that for sure and are weighing um, risk all the time. Right. I mean, life has got a lot of risk in it also. But, um, you know, I understand. I mean, I, I don't want to make light of uh, children who are in dangerous situations. And I used to teach a child abuse prevention studies class. And um, so there are many variables. But some of this risk, if we're really concerned about risk, we should be thinking about housing. You know, we should be thinking yeah. about enough food on the table. We should be thinking about mm -hmm. a living wage. You know, if we're really concerned about risk of these children, let's start thinking about, let's start thinking upstream, right? So how, how, might we think, how might we be thinking about other ways for social work practice and child yeah. welfare practice? Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, let's, let's talk about professional authority. You know, here, if mm -hmm. social workers... Yeah. Yeah, I mean that, you know how how much how we struggled for professional authority in the beginning of the 20th century, um, and 
you know, professions, and we got it. I mean, it was granted to us. We have licensing board. We've got the Council of Social Work Education. We have the National Association of Social Workers, uh, Society for Social Work and Research. We have the you know, boards of social work. We have, uh, we do have professional authority, and one. But what comes with that is a responsibility. And so, this is maybe what I think we need to start thinking about is. We have to understand that the public is granting us, as social workers, substantial autonomy and discretion because our work is really complex. We have to go to school and get advanced education. It requires specialized knowledge. Um, we have a code of ethics that we need to abide by. We have professional supervision to ensure that in the field, I mean, and these are, this is years of supervision when you're in your program and then afterwards by a licensed social worker to make sure when you run up against these difficult situations that you have consultation and somebody you can talk about uh, who is a professional social worker. Doctors, engineers, attorneys, these people are all part of a professional class of people who have had these similar kinds of experiences. And social workers fall into this too. And so um, I think that we should think about ourselves in that way and, and think about us uh, ourselves as practicing within our professional authority, our complex understanding. And when you think about it, there's hardly a profession that's more complex and difficult than social work. Uh, engineers, um, you know, they're, uh, the, what they work on is inanimate and it doesn't move like your <laughs> doesn't have thoughts and feelings, doesn't move around, doesn't have a life that it has to control outside of its calculations. Um, and even doctors who were, you know, working on bodies and, and people, it's a different thing. In social work, not only are we working with people who have really complex problems, but they're living in a society that has a very complex impacts on them. So I, I, it's hard for me to think of another profession that has a more difficult um, decision-making and calculus to do than social work. And we need to be able to use our full range of capacity uh, in order to do that. Yeah, definitely. I know you've been in research for a long time about this topic. What what has been done on the effects of managerialism and neoliberalism and social work practice? Yeah, you know, um, I have I have been working with a, a group, a chair, uh, the, the um, neoliberal impacts on social work practice group at the University of Minnesota, and we have done a scoping review of all of the literature on the effects of neoliberalism on social work practice in the United States. Um, and what's interesting is that almost all the other uh, Western democratic countries and other countries around the world use the term neoliberalism and they understand it much better than we do here in the United States. So they're sort of, I think, ahead of us. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and uh, so doing the scoping review is sort of helpful for us to get an idea of like, how much do we know? And, you know, there were only 132 articles, which is for over 40 years, that's really not all that much. And it's about different aspects of it. But, um, in terms of looking at the idea of neoliberalism or even managerialism and social work practice, there's really one study that stands out <clears throat> and not many others that do as uh, full or comprehensive of a job. And that would be um, mm -hmm. Mimi Abramovitz. A lot of social workers will know her because they've read her yeah, work. Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, her social welfare mm -hmm. historian and public policy welfare scholar. Um, she and her colleague, Jennifer Zelnick, 
uh, conducted a survey in New York City with a number of agencies and uh, uh, of different kinds. And um, about half of them were licensed social workers. And there were about there were a total of 3,000 total respondents, about half of them. Wow. Were. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Um, yeah. But only about a half of them were licensed social workers. But what they did find was that they that managerialism, the pressures of managerialism, uh, neoliberal managerialism, was neg- negatively affecting their work. Um, they, the pressures of efficiency and productivity were impacting their relationships with clients. They started. They were wondering about the ethical decisions they had to make. They felt like their workloads were increasing, um, and in fact. Uh, we um, they have agreed to come and talk with us at a later podcast on that very yeah news. that's great so that's very exciting <laughs> yeah um and and in our next podcast before I forget Rudy we're going to be talking <laughs> about um how neoliberalism based on that scoping review we looked at we pulled out child welfare especially how neoliberalism is specifically impacting child welfare services so the next time we talk we'll be able to talk about the impacts that what we know in research so far. Yeah, that, that will be interesting. Yeah, I think that will be interesting. It'll be interesting for this audience to hear, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're sensing that, they're, that this is happening to them. But um, at, at, other than this large scale survey, there's, there's been very little done and there's been little done on this idea of professional authority, especially social work, licensed social work, professional authority, and how that should be able to resist a business managerialism, you know, with a code of ethics, with a licensing board, with our years of education. And we should be able to muster some kind of resistance to a pressure that makes us practice in a way that we don't feel really um, abides by what we know and what we believe in in our code of ethics. Um, and so I will just tell the listeners now that we are planning as a next step in our neoliberal project to do a statewide survey of all licensed social workers about the impacts of neoliberalist managerialism on their practice. And we're going to look at professional authority and other aspects of their work to see what kind of relationships we can find there. Well, that was interesting um, to talk about this. Is there anything else you would like to add? Or does it feel like there's so much we just started understanding what this means? (laughs) Yeah, we've just scratched the surface, but... um, but I hope that the listeners have gotten a taste of this. And, and um, one thing I will say is that neoliberalism uh, was it was an idea that really began in um, back in the 40s with the Montpelerin Society. And they were self-consciously aware that they were playing a long game. They, they had a political idea that needed to be sort of nurtured and, you know, with think tanks and, you know, et cetera. And uh, what we need now um, as social workers and child welfare workers, people who work with human beings who care about, you know, that is to have a different political reasoning that can, we can push back on these ideas. And um, I would say that democratic ethics would be the one, and that's what Wendy Brown would say and, and other political philosophers would say, that we, we need to think and, and resurrect an idea of democratic ethics in our, in our practice and in the way I think we are in the world, in our communities, and as citizens and, and political beings. Um, and uh, so democratic ethics that doesn't just immediately, um, there, there aren't just a list of things that come to mind. So I'm going to name some things to help us kind of uh, um, nurture again the, these ideas. So 
the idea that there, there's equal moral worth of each person so that there is no, no people are more important than other people in our society um, and that we all have the right to have rights. Um, and in nation states, that usually means citizenship rights. Um, but we have human rights or another concept that we have that can, be, that can push back too. Um, in democracies, a cornerstone is that it's ruled by the people for the people. So that means that the laws and the rules we create should be subject to change by its members, its societal members. Um, also, uh, ordinary people can become elected leaders. Social workers, you can run for office. You can become a leader who can help think and instill these kinds of ideas. Um, uh, we also that um, ideas of freedom are important, which is, you know, something that, you know, individual freedom is important. It's important not just in terms of getting the government off of me, but also having the government support me enough that I can actually engage my other rights so that I, have an, that I can engage politically, that I can engage, um, you know, socially, that I can engage my civil rights of, you know, access to a free attorney and those sorts of things. I need enough as a citizen to be able to do that. Um, also, as citizens, we need to have uh, a moral reflection we need to be able to think about other people as moral human beings. We have to follow our conscience. So rather than a, than a thing to get off the plate, you know, off your desk, or as, a, as an entity to, you know, something to um, get completed, uh, we, we do have to think about what if I were they? You know, what, what, how, how am I treating this person as a human being? Um, and, you know, we should have equal protection uh, under the law. We should all be, have, uh, you know, there, there's an idea that, um, you know, treating everybody equally is um, actually can kind of promote inequality when you have differences in history. Um, but I think today we're even, we're, we, we treat people unequally. Still to this day, we think about prison systems and incarceration. Um, so we need to think about how are we equally protecting people and then move ourselves into how do we promote equity. Uh, and we all have political, civil, social, and economic rights. And um, those things are what make us um, political agents, not economic, but political agents in our society. And um, we should think about one another that way, as, as we would like to be thought of, I think. So those are some of my big, lofty ideas. Yeah, those are big ideas. This. Yeah. Um. <laughs> But I think it does give an alternative of thinking about um, social provision and social work practice rather than what we heard here about neoliberalism. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. And, you, and uh, just one last thing I will say is that um, I do think social workers have some of the most complex jobs today. And they actually, I think, are we're symbolic. We're a symbol of this tension between neoliberalism and democracy, because we are the ones who are coming face to face with vulnerable people, vulnerable citizens. And we are citizens ourselves, or we're or residents, or we're people with rights too. And um, so social work is sort of like, unlike any other profession um, in this way. And, and I think it's important for us to take a step back and really think about how do we wanna be um, in the world given our important role. Uh, working with all kinds of um, disadvantaged people. Yes. 
definitely super, super important. Thank you so much for telling us about this today. And we will learn more next time. Sounds good, Rudy. Thank you for the interview. <laughs> Appreciate it. Take care, everybody out there. Yes. Be safe. Okay. <laughs> Be democratic. Bye-bye. This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.